0: Hello, and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Ryan Grimm, the Washington Bureau Chief for The Intercept, who has written a critically important and compelling piece on on the disarray and the meltdown in progressive organizations, environmental, environmental, uh, civil liberties uh, abortion and it's going to have a real impact on the 2022 and 2024 election if they don't get their acts straight remember we love taking your questions so write into politics war at gmail.com or send a tweet to at politicon for next week's show we'll get to as many as we can and don't forget to tell us where you're from please check out the links to this week's sponsors blinkist and raycon in the show notes we thank you for supporting our sponsors it really helps make this podcast happen Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, uh, we need to start with the January 6th committee, and I think it is delivering all that was promised and more. Uh, It has carefully assembled a case that leaves no doubt that Donald Trump tried to illicitly thwart the voters and steal the election. They sought to find voters that didn't exist to cheat. In Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, and elsewhere. Uh, just any to pull ahead. They came up with fake electors. I, 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 I thought Watergate was bad. This thing is much worse. And then what really just was maybe the most painful, they then harassed innocent election workers. When you watch that Shea Moss, a woman in Atlanta, who was just doing her job and and Trump and his thugs took after her. She can't live in her home. She's been threatened. She can't go to the grocery store. They really are just awful people. We can discuss later the feasibility of bringing criminal action against Trump, but we can say with certainty he acts like and he is a criminal, and he's surrounded by some of the worst thugs in the history of American politics.
1: So I I want to amplify a little bit. First is to announce that the hearings are going to go well into July because there's so much... Evidence that's coming across the transom. People are calling in, and I, I'll give you one of the theories I have. What's causing this are people like Bill Barr, Bill Steffian, Rusty Bowers—all people of, of of very questionable backgrounds who have come across looking like heroes, right? In in people in in, in just the way that that fame and and, and accolade drives people crazy. People are seeing this. And this is the worst possible thing that can happen to Trump. Now, I will assure our, our and I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, is that the, the final hearing is going to be huge. Well, going to be huge. And we're now going to have more because there's just more and more information coming. And people are seeing that these these people are looking enormously good in the public light and more are going to come forward. And that, that, that's just a fact. And, 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 and it started a, a, a kind of crescendo. It started momentum is exactly what you want to do. But the, the, the people that are coming forward are, are not like Miss Moss, who was just terrific, you know, human witnesses to what it is. But these are people that actually know something. And just going to be really interesting here coming down the pike.
0: I think you've raised a very good point. I would make a slight amendment. My, From what I know, I don't think I'd put Rusty Bowers in the same category as, as Bill Barr and Bill Steppian. I mean, he was a very conservative l- legislator, but, I mean, those guys were enablers of Trump for a long time. I mean, he was
1: really, from what people tell me, and I could be wrong, even he was really, really, you know... Uh, but, but but at any rate, they, they seen everybody... I don't care who you are, how ideological you are, how partisan you are, except for very few people, people want to get right with history. And this is what's happening. This committee is allowing people to get right with history.
0: It sure is. And uh, James, I don't know what Shea uh, Moss's um, uh, partisan registration is, if she has one, but 90% of the people who appear before that committee are Republicans. These are Republicans, that's the fine. So for the uh, for the for the Trumpites to claim it's the left wing deep state out to get Donald Trump, they'll claim it because they lie. But the other thing is, what what comes across? Their lawyers have got to be the most motley, awful, corrupt group. That I mean, Rudy Giuliani and oh. and um, um, you know what's her name, um, Jenna Ellis and. Uh, uh, the woman who who graduated from Carolina, Sydney Powell and Cleta Mitchell. I mean, you. I mean, they look like none of our viewers will remember this. They're like the 1969 Mets. It wasn't the 69 Mets. It was the, 61, the 60, Mets. 61 Mets. 61 Mets, right? Yeah. The 69 Mets were good. Mar- Marvelous. Can anybody here right. play this game? Exactly. I mean, actually, it was the uh, it was the uh, Biden the 69 team, Mets, Jackson uh, who were they? Walter Dellinger with the 69 mess but they really are. It is the you know most inept, clumsy, duplicitous group of lawyers I've ever seen. So I, I was teaching middle
1: school in Bagvashry, Louisiana, in 1969, and I did. I'll never forget that that, that World Series. But you were, but but they're looking at the way that people are starting to look good. And they're going like, I don't wanna be Ron Johnson. I wanna I wanna be, you know, Rusty Bowers. Right, right. I, I mean, and and they're they're seeing this. And this is the this is I I, I kinda of think this might be by design, but I mean this thing has been very, very well planned out. It's it's and Kevin McCarthy has now figured out they don't they have nothing. This whole thing, this whole committee is doing whatever it wants. It's unified. You don't have anybody that's coming, you know, throwing sand in the gears. And that was their choice. They had the opportunity. I mean this is when you what you get when you remove yourself from a process. The process runs over you and this thing is this thing has got a real head of steam. Real head of steam. It,
0: it has been brilliantly put together, I think, sure Lead person in the committee is probably Liz Cheney, but everyone's done a good job. They must have one hell of a staff. Because, and, you know, there was a lot of grumbling back in March. God, when are they going to start? Let's see, you know, I wish they're lagging, they're dragging their feet. This thing is going on. It was worth it because they carefully, methodically put this together, and they have presented just such a case. Now,
1: You know, I got to give credit. Benny Thompson has come across is is pretty damn good in this. Yeah, he has. I mean, you know, and it was... It, Fellow southerner, but but yeah, and I mean, Liz is such a dynamic and compelling force, and just visually, she so stands out so much when you look at the committee. But but uh, it, it they've let the other members let Adam Schiff and they let the, uh Aguilar from Texas. Uh, Lofkin. They've let them do some questioning, and all of them have been very good and very effective. It's very well done. I, I, I got to tell you, it's 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 it is it's one impressive goddamn thing. More more than, and it's getting ready to get a lot more impressive.
0: It is, and I'll Kinzer you the that. other Republican will be next in the dock, and I think he's so, going to be impressive too. Everyone,
1: let's, let's take a second because okay. we have been, and I've been appropriately gloomy about November. I, today, I, I can't tell you that I'm not gloomy, that, that that would be an overstretch, but politically I feel possibility this morning. And I'll tell you why, because I think I'm almost certain these committee hearings are going to get more compelling and more damaging to Trump and the Republicans. All right, that I know is coming. I know... The Supreme Court cases are just going to be awful. The public is not ready, and I'm not just, just talking about the abortion cases. I'm talking Guns, about the gun too. case and the environmental case, which may be bigger than any of them. And it it can get explained to people in a way that they can understand. That you saw that there was a gun deal. Hey, you know what? May not be what you want. Just a gun deal. I understand it's 80% chance there's a prescription drug pricing deal coming. It's going to be kind of a deal, but it's going to apply to 19 different companies. It'll be limited, but it'll be the first time that they've done this. And I also understand that it's highly likely to get another spending deal that's going to be very very beneficial. I mean, in other words... the idea that nothing is getting done in Washington, this this will help some. So if you have the combination of all of those things, now if we don't move the needle, but with that, we're not going to move the needle. And I'm not sure to tell you that this trumps inflation, and that, you know, with the congressional generic errors, and I can't tell you that I feel optimistic, but I feel better today than I felt in the last two to
0: three months. We will but, have a we will have a show. I think I have my. Dates right, um, uh, James, on the 21st of July. That is, uh, you know, four weeks away. And f- if by four weeks from today, that's after the Supreme Court. That's right. after they started to move some stuff on Capitol Hill. That's after, it's probably the, after the end of these hearings, which, right. I think your right, could be explosive. If then, if the generic Democrat hasn't moved a little... <laughs> little bit polls looking better in Georgia, Pennsylvania, right. Wisconsin, and North Carolina. I think they I, will, but that'll be the test
1: it it will and and i i I'll, I'll be I'll be fundamentally like i don't know if we could move if all if all of this doesn't move anything and i I don't know if they're going to be able to move the democratic number very much or the Biden number, maybe some of these accomplishments can move the Biden number a, a little bit uh and if if Democrats ever came home and understood what was going on, they could actually move the Biden number by more than just a little bit. But right. there, there's some stuff coming up that, that, that is, is really going to be different. I mean, can you imagine, you say, we got a, a, a gun deal, an infrastructure deal, right. a prescription drug deal. I mean, this is shit that people, like, dreamed of. And some of it's happened, and a lot of it is kind of likely to happen.
0: Okay, I, all right, out there, July twenty first. God, I hope I have the date right, but yeah, I think it's right. I want you to mark it down and and right. hold our feet to the fire. It's right, so the uh, day after my okay. birthday.
1: All right, go all ahead. All, all right, all well, and,
0: and you better remember J- July twentieth. I don't think I'll forget. Okay. <laughs> she,
1: she, she, she's not okay. she's not the kind of child that lets you forget. Okay, we have our birthday celebrations are like Kwanzaa. they go on forever. <laughs>
0: Ryan Grimm wrote one of the most important political pieces of the year in The Intercept, how all-consuming internal warfare among progressive groups or inside progressive groups, pro-choice advocates, environmental, civil liberties, and others, they're in a meltdown with schisms that are diminishing their effectiveness uh, in a all-out political and social and policy battles this year. Ryan, explain what this is all about and who are the factions.
2: Well, oftentimes it's it's talked about as breaking down along kind of management and staff lines within these organizations, but it, often there are staff for staff, uh, you know, factions as well, and it can it, that bleed into these bigger problems, but these bigger blow ups. Uh, but I mean that that's essentially what we're that's essentially what we're talking about, and I and I, and I looked specifically at. Kind of DC-based progressive nonprofits—the kind that everybody's heard of—you know, Sierra Club, ACLU, Planned Parenthood, Naral, Naral Pro Choice America—those those types of organizations—and and also the ones that fewer people have heard of, like the like Guttmacher Institute or the Audubon Society. But this phenomenon is is not unique to you know DC nonprofits as well. You you see the the same kind of dynamics unfolding in in, in tech in corporate America generally. Uh, you know, cr- across the board over the last several years.
0: Is it, is it driven by what I guess critics call uh, wokeism and uh, uh, on the other side calls historic racism and driven also by social media's call-out culture?
2: I, I think that some of it definitely is, and, and I spend a lot of time in the piece kind of exploring what produced it, and I, I think Trump's election really triggered it. You know, in a way, like it was it was something that was happening already, but the kind of the shock to the system of of Trump getting into office, uh, I think, brought brought kind of progressive groups and progressive staff and management, everybody else together for maybe six months or a year. But then very quickly, they were at each other's throat. And these these tensions that had been bubbling up beforehand, you know, really bubbled over.
0: Ryan, you mentioned the Guttmacher Institute. I've written about abortion for decades, and the, the data, the research that Guttmacher produces is invaluable. Uh, I mean, I don't see how someone could write seriously about abortion uh, without using uh, Guttmacher. And with boor- abortion under really the greatest assault in a, in a long, long time, I, I mean, they can ill afford to have, you know, these internal schisms that are taking most of their time.
2: And it's it's across the board, right? It's it's not just them, but if you look at all of these organizations, you know, people say, and I think with you know some credibility that this is one of the most pivotal moment, moments in in our history. You know, it is. You know, are we? You know, which direction is the country going? Which direction is the world going? And and you have all of these institutions, you know, paralyzed at this moment. Not just not just Goodmacher, but yes, James. This is something you
0: care a lot about. Join, yeah, in, join in. So, uh, Brian, I, th- I think quote, everybody
1: knew to some degree this was going on and no one wanted to touch it, and, man, you didn't touch it. You you grabbed it. <laughs> it what, what's been the reaction? Because the Intercept is hardly like a right-wing spot, all mm-hmm. right? But, but at any rate, what's been the reception within your publication and people are obviously getting a lot of phone calls about this Are people mad at you, happy with you? What? what just give us...
0: Well, I was at, well
2: right now. I was actually shocked at the recept, reception of it. Like I, and and I I wrote a, a newsletter that day. You know, predicting what the reaction to it would be, which would be, uh, you know, not really engaging with the thesis, uh, you know, caricaturing it to uh, in, into something you know beyond recognition, and then just dismissing it and dismissing me. I had my I had my bags packed. You know, I I figured this was this was going to get dragged all over the place and, and just, you know, run out of town, like, like a lot of stories about this phenomenon have. Uh, but, but instead, and I think perhaps because it touched on the effect of this phenomenon inside organizations that so many people were able to read it with an open mind, because it, it wasn't any longer about, does this thing exist? Is this thing good or bad? It was, what is the consequence of this on our daily lives? And as a result, I got a, sh- a shockingly uh, positive reception um, to the piece.
1: well that, that's, that's gratifying the uh One of the things that that you point out that most of this is driven by whites, and most of the people, or most exclusively that were on the mall on January sixth were white. I, I I have a theory. We need better white people in this country. <laughs> well, you,
2: you, you build a country with the not not with the white people you might want, but the white with the white people you have. <laughs> as Donald Rumsfeld might have said, right. that, "Yes." So, and that's a, that was an interesting uh, you know thing that 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 I that kept surfacing throughout the reporting. And talking to a lot of uh, black and brown executive directors and leaders of, of organizations who, who recently, you know, over the last couple of years, were, were able to move into their positions of leadership, would say that, you know, the most vocal people in my organization around the issue of race are white. And often they would be kind of weaponizing the language of white supremacy culture uh, in, in order to you know get get a leg up in in factional battles and and using and deploying that against you know black leaders and and one of them compared it to if you remember the uh the, the hollow the hollow prize thesis which kind of originated in the 1970s when you you started to have black mayors elected in cities all over the country just as deindustrialization and, and kind of urban disempowerment was hollowing out these cities. Then all of a sudden they say, okay, well, well now, okay, now finally we're allowed, we're allowed to lead these cities. And he said it felt similar in a way that, that finally, some of the, because these it, has been white male dominated for decades, a lot of these progressive institutions. Finally, women come in in the 2010s. Finally, uh, people of color start to be able to run them now. And they're just collapsing in heaps of recrimination with all of these leaders of color getting blamed for you know, not instantly turning around this organizations that in many cases are more than 100 years old.
1: So there were many interesting things in that. I'm gonna to talk to you about some more, but the one thing that struck me is when I'd run campaigns and someone says, somebody from the activist community out there to see, I'd say, oh God, give me four Tylenol and be sure you interrupt me after 10 minutes, right? I didn't want these people around me. And I thought, well, maybe that's just me. Bernie Sanders doesn't want right. them around him either i I, I mean, just to a campaign guy that's the most illuminating thing where Bernie said, don't bring these people around you anymore. They're trying to be crazy. yeah
2: that 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 flowed from a an anecdote from 2020 where a ton of his uh staff um, mostly um organizers you know door door knockers field field staff uh a lot of them kind of organized a bit of an uprising, like a couple of weeks before the Iowa caucuses over a variety of different issues. And this wasn't the first kind of, you know, ground level uprising that he'd had from a lot, a lot from the field organizers, So some of the people that are you know newest to, to campaigning. And yeah, he issued this directive to his campaign staff, uh, his campaign leadership. He said, stop hiring activists. Like hire, hire people that want to go door to door that want to, that want to do the work. Like they're, they're being paid to talk to voters about our message, you know, pay them to do that. Now, here's one thing that's interesting is that, and I didn't have a chance to get into this in the story, Bernie Sanders campaign was unionized from the very beginning. And because it was unionized, those disgruntled Iowa staff had to take their grievances through their union. And there was a big meeting held a couple weeks before the Iowa caucuses where they aired their grievances. And the rest of the workers told them to sit down and shut up basically. Like they said, you're being ridiculous. Like we're here, the caucuses are in two weeks. Like, what are you doing? Like it's, it's time to get to work. And they had to respect the majority of the union. And that is the key to unlocking this entire thing is getting the rest of the staff to say to the, the small number of people who are causing a lot of these disruptions that you're out of line here unless they're in line, but if they're out of line, to be willing to say that they're out of line. But today, too many people, uh, it doesn't matter whether the allegation or the accusation is, is, is true or has any merit. You, you're very nervous about speaking up about it so that in, in the silence, the loudest voices then dominate.
1: So one of the brilliant things you said that I that I think is not said enough is if you're in a coalition and you're not and you're comfortable, that's not what you're supposed to be. Right. In other words, and, and, and within the coalition, there should be certain tensions. The, when I say these people, I'm referring to the people that are constantly complaining about conditions and, and everything else. I, are, are these people really Democrats? Do they really want to win elections? Is that is that? Does that even fit into their calculus of thinking? Or I think I think they'd like to hurt the Democrats. I think a lot of them just don't like us.
2: Well, I, th- I mean, they a lot of them, uh, depending on who we mean by them, you know. Think, right, I
1: understand. But the, right, the, the they, they think extreme. the same thing.
2: Like they they think the same thing of their opponents. That that they think nobody and and you know, given the last forty years of you know, Democratic Party history, there's not a ton of evidence uh, that that the majority of you know, people involved in it want to win. Like, there's so much back and forth. And actually, I mean, and I'd be curious to get your your take on this. I think there's in, I, th- I think the, the Hillary Clinton campaign actually bears a little bit of responsibility for this entire phenomenon, supercharging. Like, if you remember, if you think about the 2016, 2015, 2016 Bernie Sanders campaign, so it's not woke stuff. It's like, you know, they want, you know, it's, uh, you know, Medicare for all, free college, $15 minimum right. wage. What's the biggest threat? He says, you know, climate change. And Hillary Clinton's response is, if you remember, she had this famous line that she used to roll out a lot, where she said, breaking up the banks isn't going to end racism. And i was like, well, okay, what what's that supposed to mean? But what it did is it kind of signaled to a lot of, I think, party operatives that if you lean in on this question of Well, if your your issue won't end racism, then it doesn't count. So then let's talk a lot about racism, but not necessarily put forward... it, It wasn't as if Hillary Clinton was putting forward proposals that were going to, quote unquote, end racism. And so if you don't have proposals that are going to end racism, and you can't break up the banks because that won't end racism, then what you're left with is this individual infighting. Like, oh, I have identified a particular racist within my organization, you know, who said the wrong thing in a meeting, and they need to be canceled. And so you see a lot of the energy that was behind a more kind of class-oriented Sanders campaign kind of funneled then instead. Because I think then the the left respond respond to that by saying, we're not Bernie bros, we're not sexist, we're not racist, look how woke we are. And so they adopt it too. And so now you have both factions kind of feeding off of each other and I think you, need, you needed both to produce the kind of uh, phenomenon that we wound up with. So
1: I'll get back to you. What, what, just make a general observation. For Bernie Sanders, he is not, he he's uncomfortable with the cultural left. He, he doesn't come across, he does not speak the faculty lounge language. Right. I mean, be very clear about this. He, and the issues that he runs on are, are generally larger economic issues and mostly pertaining to distribution. But but he does not. When I talk about the ravages that that they do, but Bernie doesn't come across that way right. at all. Because right. kind of, it might be like a cranky old Jew screaming at kids playing stickball in the street, but he's, <laughs> he's not speaking some coded language. Albert?
0: Yeah, Ryan, let me ask you, what would the, those, whatever we call them, combatants, insurgents, young woke types... Um, What would would they say um, to, to, okay, if you're in the Sierra Club and John Muir was a proponent of eugenics, a despicable theory, or Planned Parenthood and Margaret uh, Sanger was a proponent of eugenics, take their names off, whatever there is there. Just, you know, eliminate the, you know, any honor that's bestowed upon them, but don't let it tar the whole organization with racism. How would they respond?
2: Well, how, how would which respond?
0: How would the you know the young, as I say, for lack of a better right. term, insurgents, well, well, woke, the way whatever. that
2: the, the way that they've often respond to that is to say, well, that's good that you took that step, um, but it's just cover for the steps that you haven't taken yet, and the steps that you haven't taken yet keep moving backwards and backwards and backwards, and so it it, it be, and so a lot of these organization leaders have now started rethinking the way that they're responding to these demands and, and saying that. So you know, if you start out, and I have there's a good quote from one of them in there that says, you know, says you know if you start out by conceding all of the ground, uh, then there there are no concessions that can scale up to the um, amount of you know harm that you're acknowledging because a lot of them are acknowledging hundreds of years of harm. So there's not there's there's literally nothing that a single organization or leader can do to right those wrongs. Other than be annihilated, uh, and so instead, what a lot of them are now doing is drawing a firm line in the sand and saying, "Look, like no, okay, you're uh, it, it is it is absolutely the case that uh, you know racism, misogyny, transphobia are, are problems in this in this country and in this organization that we need to that we need to deal with, uh, but but we are also not putting up with these these distractions." And this BS that is trying to use those problems for ulterior, ulterior motives. Because if, if you start out by conceding a lot of ground, what what they have found is that they just get completely run over.
0: Yeah, well, they, I, that's exactly right. And, uh, I mean, they ought to probably stand up more. This is, a, I guess, a first cousin of it, but it applies to those uh, complainers, too. You know, i I watched those some of those people protesting in front of Justice Kavanaugh's house and abortion. I have no brief for Kavanaugh or any of those other right-wing justices. But but you want to say, get your ass to Pennsylvania or North Carolina or Ohio. Register voters. Uh, you know, narrow that enthusiasm gap that the right-wing uh, now enjoys. I mean, I mean, those people, I, I don't know what I, what, I, what I mean when I say those people. I guess the complainers, not much interest in doing stuff like that.
2: You know, and I, but I think, and then some of them also feel like there's not much it, you know, the, the, the every every channel they kind of take to be part of the process then you know gets gets shut down. Let's say you say, well, don't run third parties, you know, run run within the party. Uh, so then you start supporting candidates like, you know, AOC or Rashida Tlaib, Elon Omar, Presley, uh Jamal Bowman, you you name it, and the entire kind of apparatus of the Democratic Party coalesces into these massive super PACs that are going to then just drop endless amounts of money on these, uh, on these candidates. And s- to spend in, in Texas, uh, you know, th- to endorse a guy who'd been, you know, has had his home raided by the FBI and was the only Democrat to vote against uh, uh, Roe v. Wade, you know, recently in the House. He has a primary opponent. And the Democratic Party pulls out all the stops to try to make to pull him over the finish line. And I think he's up by a couple hundred votes at this point. Yeah. And so it's it sends a signal that, well, what do you want from us? Like, is like if that's if, you know, if we're trying to participate in this way. So if it I've, and I think that could that'll end up breeding some nihilism that will then only fuel the phenomenon that we're talking yeah. about.
0: Yeah, I'm going to turn back to James, but. Uh, uh, these types would have hated FDR, uh, and they and plenty uh,
2: did, they, as you know.
0: Yes, right? and they and they would have said, uh, "Hey, we want Medicare for all, and the Affordable Health Care Act is uh, uh, is not only a distraction; it really is. Uh, it's preventing us from our goal. But you know, there are there are, there are tens of millions of people whose lives are a hell of a lot better because you have the Affordable Health Care Act, and maybe you can mm-hmm. build on. It, but they would say that's that's nonsense. Names, so, Brian, I'm. I'm-
1: Sitting here in the northern Gulf of Mexico where a water temperature is about 88 degrees, and trust me, that's not good. You don't want to be in that position, and you're not even in July yet. And the Sierra Club is thought to be the foremost environmental group in the country, at least it's the one you hear the most about. And apparently, it's been dysfunctional. hmm now, it, it hasn't done anything because it's, it, 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 I want you to go into a little bit about accountability in foundation funding for mm-hmm. these organizations, because they don't seem to be very responsive to, to, you know, to, to donors at foundations that have a lot of part of their
2: support. And quite, quite the opposite, in fact, uh, from what I've been able to gather so far, is that in many, if not all of these cases, the foundation actually added fuel to the fire like they were pouring gasoline on it. Uh, partly, some of the foundations were I think actively and explicitly in, in kind of support of these, these transformations, these mm-hmm. large-scale upheavals within the organization. In other cases, uh, they were not, but at, as executive director said, the, the staff at the foundations would kind of be in ide- ideological alignment with the staff at say, the Sierra Club. And would kind of force the hand then of these program officers. So because, so the program officers at these foundations, they have a lot of power. They've got a lot of money, but they have that power and money because they have a job. And they start then fearing that they're going to get thrown out. So everybody's just in fear of being called, being called out, um, you know, from somewhere else. And so they're just doing everything they can to just survive and not get called out. And you have this then, kind of mass. Uh, delusion, where they, they end up, right, pushing ideas that destroy the organizations that they're funding.
1: So I'm telling everyone to read your piece. And, at the, and when you finish that piece, read the New York Times piece on how ruthlessly well organized these pro-pollution people are. Hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, the Federalist Society, the judges, the attorney generals. I, I, I mean, they're like a, a juggernaut. And we're squabbling over I don't know what. And we're getting the living shit kicked out of us. We we just are. And and it it, it has to be acknowledged. And for some reason, the head of the Ford Foundation is supposedly a very great guy, grew up in Lafayette, Louisiana, He went to UT. He's a very elegant man, he said, we let the chips fall. Well, the chips are falling and they're <laughs> falling in a good place, dude. They're falling on your mm-hmm. head. And these people have an idea that they can bring about social change without, politi- without political power. And they're nuts. Yeah. All right, one Supreme Court justice is worth, I don't know how many foundations. That, and yeah. we just keep getting beat and beat and beat. And it's a lot of it is... We're fighting, you know, some rear guard action that's occupying all of our time, and the
2: pollution people are going nuts. Yeah, like the Federalist Society and big oil stole the mantra of the civil rights movement, which was, you know, eyes on the prize. Like, they have, they have their eyes on the prize. Uh, your, your, your case of the Ford Foundation is, is a really good one. Like, he's specifically and explicitly saying, our eye is not on the prize. You know, let let the prize go wherever the prize goes, and the federal Society is like, great, we'll we'll take it, we're happy to. Right.
1: We're well, just fund things that we like. We don't care if they're we don't care if they're effective. Well, that's that's ludicrous grant making, I think. <laughs> and, and and I think it's more than just the Ford Foundation mm-hmm. and the, the staffs of these foundations. People tell me it, it's you know universities, foundations, progressive advocacy groups, and everything like that that they're being totally distracted but i and yeah i and i, yeah, I feel, and I feel like point.
2: it goes back to what you were saying earlier about power and and whether you feel like you can attain it so many people who are getting into politics now just have a are just hopeless and in despair and feel like change is not possible and so then they turn inward so i, I can't i can't change the world but i can at least change my my office space here <laughs> And so So then you're
1: 44. You're you're kind of a translator. Right. There are certain people, and you talked up to someone on a podcast, which is very good too. You can link to the podcast from the article. I highly recommend. In I've never I've tried to stay away from these people a lot. You live in that world. You're younger Mm -hmm. than me, and you live in Washington. Some of them really don't want to win elections. Some some people on the left just like feeling superior about themselves and think that electoral politics is is by itself a a, a Mm -hmm. soiling business if you will
2: Mm -hmm. yeah is that a fair assessment yeah and and uh i interviewed mark rudd who's you know fascinating figure um an american icon in some ways you know he was part of the weather underground the domestic terrorist organization is you know he's completely denounced that uh calls himself a complete idiot at the time and and he chalks up part of his idiocy at the time to what he identifies as a broader phenomenon on the left, which is just not wanting power. And, and part of it being just uncomfortable with hegemony and uncomfortable with co- coercion. And you know the, a lot of liberals don't want to tell other people what to do. And that's what power is, is telling other people what to do. Uh, there, but for others, there's all sorts of other reasons why it requires, as you said, working in coalition. And working in coalition means working with people that you're uncomfortable with because if you weren't uncomfortable with them they would be in your group you know they'd be your ally they wouldn't be in a separate group that you were in coalition with and so you're i think you're right that there are a lot of people who just actually don't want power and and don't want the responsibility that comes with it
1: yeah and, and I, I... I had kind of noticed it before, but you, you've really, really brought it home and very effectively. I, I'm serious. I, I think this is one of the most insightful and impactful pieces of journalism in a long time because it was one of these things that everyone knew this was going on. And you know, when I started my little rear guard action here in April of 2020, you said, man, I, I, I'd like to say that, but you know, how do you you know, you say anything? I said, well, there's nothing, they can't do anything to me. That, so they'll just leave me alone. All right. There's nothing. Hmm. It, one final question is, it, is there any difference between cancel culture and call out culture?
2: I, I, I don't think so. I think call out culture is a, a phrase that is still slightly more acceptable within kind of progressive circles. Than, than cancel culture, because cancel culture has been so kind of co-opted by the right. So I don't think so. I think it's basically the same thing. The call out focuses on the individual who's doing the calling out. So I say, you know, mm-hmm. James is terrible, uh, right. whereas cancel culture focuses on the reaction after people call out, because you're always going to have call outs. Like throughout history, everybody always is criticizing somebody else. What? What moves it right. in in the culture is whether or not the rest of the room, the rest of the crowd, joins in on on the cancellation or on, or, or also calls them out, and that's what has that's what has changed in in recent years. That now pretty much every call out uh, winds up with the room behind it. And I you know I talk to people who run run left wing progressive trainings around the country. They're like, we can't do trainings anymore. Like we can't host trainings because the Facilitator of the training will be called out like within the first hour and it will just descend right. into, into chaos. It, and it, that used to happen, but the room would not be with them. The room would say, oh, We're here for a training. Can we not do this now? And then they would move on with the training, but now everybody's in. So I think that's if there's a subtle distinction between those two things, I think that's, that's what it is. Thank you, Albert.
0: Well, yeah. I just want to thank you, Ryan. Mm-hmm. This is a really important story. One more uh, quick, quick question. We, we, you mentioned four. What are several of the other foundations uh, that are that are that are causing this problems? Well, I mean,
2: all. I think all of the big ones um, are susceptible to this phenomenon. So that would be. Uh, I mean, just basically name them. What like Tides, uh, Open Open Society, um, mm-hmm. Carnegie. Like, I mean, basically anybody who's. Uh, with, you know, basically anybody who's giving out big amounts of money. Um, and right. anybody who, you know, has staff uh, is going to be confronting these.
0: Well, everybody out there ought to read this piece. Uh, Ryan Grimm and the Intercept uh, on the meltdown among progressives. I'm afraid it has um, uh, really, really dark implications Uh for, um, for American politics uh, if they don't get that, their, their acts straight. Ryan, thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. A, yeah. a
2: really, really important piece. Ground, groundswell, you. which is the biggest funder of reproductive rights. They, they organized a union a couple of weeks ago. Like, so they're going through it too. Like it's, yeah, it's all of them.
0: Yeah, but you, but I, I know where are ending, but, but, but as you pointed out, or as James pointed out with the Bernie people, unions aren't necessarily going to be, uh, be disruptive. Exactly. I mean, they can cut they're, the other they're, way. They're a, they're a symptom, yeah.
2: but they can also be a solution.
0: Right, yeah. right. Ryan Grimm, you are a terrific guest. It's a terrific piece. Thank you Thanks so much. Guys.
1: Thank you. Thank you, man. That, 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 that took some fucking courage. <laughs>
2: Appreciate it.
0: Okay, hey, James, now for our listener questions. The first that comes in is from John in Gurney, Illinois. i not quite sure where Gurney is, John. You know, tell us. Uh, he said, Democrats are finally talking about a windfall tax on oil companies' excessive profits. Do you think there's a will to pass it, or will Joe Manchin escan the idea?
1: That, that, number two.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid that's right. Uh, boy, I'll tell you something, it's something that is justified and would be popular, uh, but I think that, uh, uh, I think that uh, the politics with Mr. Manchin probably, probably don't work very well. Hey, James, I love this next question. It's Greg in Atlanta, Georgia. The NCAA stripped North Carolina a few years ago of hosting tournaments because of the bathroom law. Uh, which was later repealed. Georgia lost the All-Star game last year because of its absurd voter suppression legislation. However, states like Texas and Florida are passing more draconian measures dealing with LGBTQ, guns, public health, and abortion. Where is the corporate outrage and the and the NCAA and, and and athletic activism? You are dead right, Greg. And the pressure ought to build. I mean, if the what these states if the, if the bathroom law was taken, you know, was enough to remove. The NCAA tournaments and everything from North Carolina, what the hell Florida and Texas are doing ought to strip them for life. And I just think the pressure ought to begin. Ken Chenault, who was a great CEO uh, and a really prominent black leader, was going to lead an effort. I'm going to try to get back to Mr. Chenault because not a lot's happened, James.
1: Well, I I think something huge has happened in this whole thing, and that is Disney. And I think when these companies saw what DeSantis did to Disney, which is like unconscionable that you target a corporation because of its views, it'd be like mm-hmm. a, a, a liberal, democratic administration decided to just was going to single. All company, a pharmaceutical company, or something like that, out they, they, they go crazy, and I think these 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 companies thought that activism was in the best. But what they found out is what we find out politically, is the younger people who believe in this are, get distracted. The older people who hate this vote, and that's exactly what's happening now. Is younger people should be watching that that young Miss Moss. How, how could you be? a young person of color and not see that and want to vote. But you know what? They are making a big bet that young people of every kind, particularly young people of color or anything like that, they just don't do anything. So you can just run over them. And I hate to say this, but unless and until these young people start taking things in their own hand and coming out and voting and electing people. And, Bowie, there's one solution to this, and only one, and don't kid yourself. It's not activism. It's not doing anything. It's winning elections. I promise you, the five worst Democrats in Washington are five times better than the five best Republicans.
0: Well, if you want to follow some of this corporate stuff, uh, you know, I'm going to put a plug in for one of our guests, you know, I guess uh, months ago, and that's Judd Legum. Uh, popular information. He nails these corporations. His latest was, and I'm not sure what happened, but the Texas Republican Party. That I mean, uh, they they made uh, 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 you know they made Franco look like a liberal. Oh. Uh, uh, they had oh. Uh, uh, oh. and then but, they had Pepsi as a sponsor. Now Pepsi denies it, but read Jud Jud on uh, on popular uh, information.
1: But they, they don't care because <laughs> they know that young people are not going to do shit. And James, I'm, I'm I'm being very candid here. And I, I'll read Judd because I'm a big fan of
0: him. He's a, he's he's huge. Right. Gordon in Northwood, uh, Michigan says Texas 34. That's the race Republicans uh, just won. Heavily Hispanic should be a wake up call. What can Democrats do to remedy this? I'm sure that relegating the term Latinx <laughs> to the dustbin of history would be a good start. But what else the Democrats have to do? They can't keep losing this Latino vote, James.
1: Well. They can't. The other thing is I understand that the district will be more democratically favorable in November than it is now. I think that's the case, but somebody can fact check me on that. Uh, they've done a lot of damage to the brand, and there is, is no question about that. In South Texas, you you, you have to remember the, the two things that most people employed in a family say somebody that works on the border enforcement and works in fracking. And they that, that's the mainstays in of, of agriculture or the mainstays of the South Texas economy. I, I don't know how we got trapped into this, uh, you know, having no border or, or, or giving people the equivalent of a traffic ticket for coming to the country and, and reducing border enforcement. A, it, it's terrible policy, and it's be even more important to somebody like me, it's horrible politics in South Texas. Yeah. But what has happened to the Democratic Party is we have allowed ourselves, or we have let coastal overeducated elites define who we are as a party, and they don't relate to people in South Texas. And the, the, they feel like the Democratic Party doesn't value their lives and right. they're voting that way. And that's, I, I, I hate to say it, it, it in some ways it, it's understandable. And we just got to
0: yeah.
1: get away from th- this sort of, you know, coastal overeducated
0: roots that have taken hold in this party. Agree. The next question is from Fred in Seattle, Washington. Fred has a simple question. And I think I've helped you in this a lot, James. Mitch Landrew for president. I've been working James on this, and I think I've converted him. I think he's there now, uh, and I will just tell you, Fred, that uh, Mark Leibovich had a great piece in the Atlantic that said Joe Biden, of course, is uh, is not too old to be president now, but he will be too old to be president next time, and he shouldn't run again. I agree. Kamala Harris, I think, will be a factor, but she's not going to clear anyone out of that field. And I think someone like Mitch Landrew would be a terrific candidate. The only worry I have about some of these guys, if Joe you know, hangs in there and doesn't say he's getting out. and you know, I mean, the idea of jump-starting late, I think, is difficult. But right. um, you know, there are, there are a number of good Democrats out
1: there. But they're, they're, I, I mean, I, I, I wanted Mitch to run in twenty twenty, and he he would not run against Joe Biden. He, if Joe Biden runs, he certainly will not run for president, without a doubt. Uh, I, I'm I'm not sure that a short sprint uh, might not be good for him. You know, let me take a second here say, the, the biggest thing when you run for president, you know this, you've covered, <laughs> I don't want to embarrass you by telling you how many different presidential cycles you've done. Thank developed. you, James. <laughs> but but, but the, the most important step out of the box is people have to look at you and say, that guy has some chance to win. Right? That, that And that's just not that the journalists have to look at you, the voters, the, 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 everything has to look at you and say, well, this guy has a chance to win. The all inspector never had a chance. No one never took him seriously. The thing that Mitch would have is when, when he announced, people would say, well, he's, he's got a chance, so we better pay attention to him. And the thing that he has more than – and I'm talking about – and I'm, I'm very careful about making comparisons. His talent is in the Clinton-Obama realm. I'm not going to say he's better than Clinton or he's better than Obama. I'm not. He's first person's judgment. But that is the tier that, that he belongs in. And, and I honestly don't know of another Democrat that occupies that space as a communicator. So he, he, if Biden runs for re-election, there's zero chance that, that he would not support President Biden. But if whatever reason Biden doesn't, he is going to, out of the chute. Is going to be the best communicator in the race.
0: James, uh, Doctor Harry, Doctor Harry, as always says, in Seattle, Washington, is challenging. Right. He's going to challenge you. He said, James repeatedly is blunt about the intellectual capacity of Republicans, especially Trump supporters, the religious right, Fox News, or pretty much any person or group on the other side of reason. Nobody speaks about the innate intelligence differences, and with good reason. There's a sharp back edge to the sword. However, James, you live comfortably, this is Dr. Harry, in some uncomfortable domains. Would you care to discuss this beyond soundbites and epithets? That, that they're intelligent or not intelligent? I guess he's saying how can you, you apply a double standard and say, I think this is what Dr. Harry is saying. Uh, yeah, try to help me here. Yeah, I, and I'm, you know... Because I'm not, not intelligent right. enough to understand the question, but right. you Doc, help me? Dr. Harry, you're just too goddamn smart for us. Uh, right. But I think what Dr. Harry is saying is that you demean the intellectual talents of Republicans or capacity of Republicans, Trump right. supporters the religious right... But you know you you never address the intellectual capacity of people you well, agree with i i I somehow or another if someone
1: thinks the earth is five thousand years old i can 't get beyond it i'm sorry it's a stupid idea all right if someone believes fervently that 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 climate change is a chinese hoax i'm sorry you're stupid i i i i can't go any further than that. can I tell you that there's not stupid democrats that say stupid things of course but but the collective stupidity of the republican party is is no way comparable to this periodic stupidity of the democratic party and by the way the stupidity of the democratic party is most harmless shit. it's about language and what you call people and just cockamamic crap that doesn't like have a great effect on your life. Hey, hey, Doc, I'm living here in the northern Gulf of Mexico. The water temperature's 88 degrees, and we're not even in July yet. If you don't think climate is real, you're fucking stupid, and I'll call you that.
0: Okay, Dr. Harry. You heard right, you Dr. Heard it. Yeah, I'll give you my answer. If
1: you think <laughs> if you think that, that the earth is five thousand years old, you're you're one dump sum itch,
0: I'll tell you that. <laughs> Lynn in Brownville, Maine. God, I love Maine. Hmm. I don't know where Brownville, you know, Brownville is. Brownville, Texas. The I know, best. but this is Brownville, Me, and Me is Maine, right? Right, right. She's, she's uh, you know, she says, "I swear, every time I look at Instagram, I see Tulsi Gabbard. I don't trust her, especially since Fox News seems to uh, give her a regular microphone. I think she likes to self, uh, hear herself talk. What's she up to? I feel guilty about Tulsi Gabbard because I thought she was a really interesting person." about five or six years ago. I had breakfast with her one day. I talked to her a couple of times. I actually put her on the John F. Kennedy Profile and Courage uh, Committee. And something happened to her, James. I don't know what. Uh, but she's kind of gone loony. Uh, you yeah, know, I some hate- of it, she hates Muslims. She's a, uh, you know, a Hindu. Uh, and uh, I'm not quite sure why Tulsi Gabbard, who is a really promising young Hawaii politician, uh, right. has, I, seems to have gone bonkers.
1: There, there was a really kind of pissy art critic in the way that art critics can be. And they asked him what did he think of Leroy Neiman? And he said, Well frankly, I, I, know, I, I seldom think of Leroy Neiman. Neiman. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and ne- Leroy Neiman, as you know, is a kind of popular artist in a lot of sports stuff, right. different colors. You know, I, I have no right. idea they're probably not the most, you know, talented artists ever, but it was a great but 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 the point is, is that I hadn't really thought about Tulsi Gabbard in a long time. Give me a week. To, you know, What did Eisenhower said? Uh, Nixon. About Nixon? What was
0: What has Nixon contributed to this administration? Well, give me a week or two. I'm thinking about here, right? it. Yeah, that's kind <laughs> of So, Lynn, and exactly Lynn, tell us where Brownville, Maine is. and yeah. Give us a mm-hmm. week or two on Tulsi Gabbard, and we'll get back to you. Final question we have today is, from Marcello. No, wait a minute. I'm getting I'm getting these mixed up here, James. This is from Gordon. Uh, no, James, where am I? I'm really confused. I am. I'm, I'm kind of. No, this is it. Okay, I am right. sorry. Um, this is Sue in Cumberland, Rhode Island.
1: How do we get to, to all that? Okay, so we have right. to Sue now I I got you. Well, sue. at least
0: I gave us a you know, I gave us a little bit of a right, geographical right. tour around the country. Right. That's cause right. we love America. Sue yeah. wants to say she wrong to ignore political polls. The recent history of inaccuracy. I consider polls, she says, to be the gnats of the political landscape. Unfortunately, reporting results of polls seem to be a necessary evil. She would appreciate your opinion, James Carville. Well, I
1: and I want your opinion too, because of a little known fact, but I'll Tell us uh, about was the originator of the NBC News Wall Street Journal polls at the Wall Street Journal. is probably supervised as many polls as as, as any journalist. I, I I can't tell you the number of polls I've looked at over the period of my life. And and th- there's a couple of points that I would make. Is first of all, it's very seldom that a poster rigs it or tries to be inaccurate. Right. They they. they I'm not telling you it doesn't happen, but it, it doesn't happen that frequency. The second thing I would say is is that Trump did to start polling models because he did he did something that the Democrats have long dreamed of but had never been able to do, is he activated a group of people that had been largely dormant before he came on, and it it. it screwed up the polling numbers to some extent. They're trying right. to adjust, and I think they'll, they'll be better. The third thing I would say is you, you think most people believe that the most important thing is the accuracy of the numbers. The smarter people believe that the... I'd rather have a, a question that is a 10-question and 7-accuracy than have a 7-question with a 10-accuracy. Okay, and, and so... And, and th- 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 there's a limit to what Poland can do. There's a limit to what it means. But the, the great Peter Hart said, and this was very young, and we'll talk some more about this later in the show, that if you go to the doctor, and the doctor you know, does your vitals and does blood work, lab work, and everything, and he says, well, you're going to be dead in seven months and one day. And you drop dead in seven months and one day, you say, gee, that was a good doctor. No. That's not what you're looking for. (laughs) That's not you're not looking for somebody to predict what's going to happen. You're looking for somebody that can help you affect an outcome. So I I I I, I like the question. It's a good question. Unfortunately, it 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 just takes a, a deep answer, and there's probably no. Topic that given our, our combined experience over a lifetime would do something than, than polling. So I, I, I'd be interested in your view. Or do you agree with me? I want to add a
0: technical Well, away no, I, I, I do agree with you. I would just say one thing, Sue, and this is not being defensive. The polling record isn't as bad as it looks. It isn't as right. bad as, as it's perceived. People look at 2016. The national polls all had Hillary Clinton winning by two, three, or four points. She did. She won by, what, two and a half, James, 2.7 get, or yeah, something? Yeah, i have
1: tried to think about right.
0: it. Right. So there were some state polls that were off. I mean, Wisconsin was off and Michigan was off. But, you know, and there may have been unusual factors there. There may have been one or two bad <laughs> polls there. But, you know, 80%, 90% of the polls are really pretty much on the mark. If you look at 2020, the only things that I think you could say that were really negative, I don't think they missed very much, they understated Trump's vote in a few states, and it was precisely because of what James is talking about. He was bringing out, you know, there's something called a screen in polls. You try to identify likely voters. There's a number of questions you ask. It's not, There's no science to this. And one of the questions is, did you vote in the last election or the election before? that and if someone says yes they're much more likely to get in your screen of likely voters trump was bringing up people who the answer was no and that had some impact in some states. but sue i would still say to you read the polls sometimes the media is too much driven by poll results but <laughs> but, but i think they're making the necessary adjustments so, so, so because
1: of, of our interest in this, in this question I'll, I'll, I'll do a little bit of a deeper dive it, it, the, the, what people say is they like the model, I think they still do that. Pew does. So when yeah. we would do polls, when you would do them at NBC, Boston General, we'd do campaign polls. We would, we'd do screens to see who would vote. Right. All right? They do population. and, uh, and, and you know, in Because some people in, that are not registered may register, but you could do registered, it would be okay. And then you try to gauge interest in the population. And then you do a kind of sliding scale, because what we were doing is we were kicking people out that didn't vote in sixteen in the twenty polls, right. or, or asked another question. And it's it's really expensive to go, you know, to that broad of thing and try to re- guess by do you know where you're, and and they do all kinds of crap. They've, they've thought about it. do you know That's where right. your polling place is you know, how likely you are. They do a a multi-question to get you out. Some people think that's more accurate. I don't know. But it's just, it's, it's not as simple as you think to figure out who to poll and where to put what weight on what, Response, But we're getting yeah, too deep into this.
0: Yeah, anymore. no, I agree. But, still let me, let me just assure you there are a number of really smart people in the polling business who are right. trying to make adjustments, uh, and I think uh, I think they're probably going to do a good job. But keep those letters coming. Uh, Absolutely. We really love them. And if we didn't get you this week, we will get to you again next week. Uh, and, um, Dr. Harry, um, I don't know what to tell you, but uh, I think <laughs> Some people are stupid told you everything. <laughs> <laughs> Some people okay. are just stupid. <laughs> Hey, James, I'm going to discard with the outrage this week and pay tribute to one of my dearest friends and one of the best people I've ever known in politics or journalism, Mark Shields, who passed away last weekend. And I know that you knew him well. Uh, Starting in his early 30s, Mark was a political superstar working for his hero, Robert F. Kennedy, in 1968. And then for Democrats like Jack Gilligan, Ed Muskie, Kevin White, and Morris K. Udall. You know, what they all had in common was they believed, as Mark did so passionately, that politics is a noble profession and it's the best vehicle for social change and social justice. You know, he also had respect for a small group of Republicans, uh, John McCain, Jack Kemp, Mitch Daniels. Uh, And he had disdain for those who thought politics was a hustle and didn't appreciate it was about helping people and improving their lives, i.e. Donald Trump and everyone around him. You know, Mark would ask, who's responsible for cleaner air and cleaner water? Or who's responsible for far fewer seniors? I mean, about one-third of the number of, of, of seniors living in poverty as did 25 years ago. Or who's responsible for expanding the voting franchise until recently? The answer is government. It matters. He had the sharpest wit, which we'll get to in a minute I've ever known, James. But he was, I think, one of the great people in politics in journalism, he leaves one heck of a legacy. And I know, James, he was an important figure in your life, too. So it, it is maybe somebody
1: else would have come across and, and, and showed me. He, he's the first person to ever explain what politics is really about to me. And I worked with him in 1979. And uh, a friend of mine named Shelley Baychock, you, you know his grandson, Bradley Bachock. Yep. He brought in Peter Hart and this, we wanted a general consultant and he recommended Mark. And I actually thought like campaigns were about getting signs out and you know going around a courthouse and shaking hands with as many people as you could. And he put me aside and says, look, if you shake 300 hands a day for 100 days, what have you got? Not very much. And how visibility was less important than having a message and people seeing you and identifying you with something other than the name. And he had a very sophisticated view on the difference between low-profile races and high-profile races. Mm-hmm. And of course, he gave me a, a, a passion for high-profile races, which I did bottom-up in I and, and the other thing about Mark is... He was kind in younger people who were trying to make it or, or want advice. He would spend time when, in the early 80s when I'd come to Washington. He'd call me and, you know, he'd say, hey, let's go to this kind of thing. Somebody's having a book party. You know, you'd show up with Mark Shields. I know mean, who the fuck I was? Or, you know, some neer do from South Louisiana. And, he, and I think there are a lot of people in Mark's life that he mentored, that he took time, and he had a, and he didn't have, you know, it's kind of funny. He was an Irish guy from Boston, a Northing guy, but we had more in common, you know. We were both Marines, and he spoke the language of the people. He never got enamored with with high-end Boston at all, never got enamored with high-end Washington at all. People liked him. He was popular. He was invited everywhere. But but Mark Shields, other than the fact that he courageously, I mean, just stopped drinking in the 70s, and his wife was just one of the more dedicated—he used to tell me, like, in the early 80s, And how he would read the Red Sox box score to his daughter, Amy was her name. And, you know, he instilled in his family this kind of love for all things Boston and passion. He was just a a, a remarkable man who had a remarkable influence on my career. I I really mean that. I, I don't think I would have ever been James Carville without Mark Shields.
0: Well, that's something. And you know, there are a lot of other people I think in that. They may not have quite risen to your heights, James, but he was so generous with anyone who needed advice or counsel, didn't matter what their rank was, uh, uh he was he he was there. Uh, you uh, could and always that thing, on with- He
1: on on the news hour, you know, that, that oh. he, on Friday night, and I mean he, he had some really Penetrating and searing observations there. He really did. Well, and, and he loved that. And he I did. just want to
0: tell you that his love of sports came, uh, you know, is still uh, still manifest. His granddaughter, Frances uh, uh, Shields Doyle, I think it's Shields Doyle, who is in the tenth grade at BCC, is a basketball star. So um, you know, Mark wow. Mark Mark used to watch her games. They used to stream her games. On that, and his wife Ann Shields is one of the really spectacular people I've ever known. The only thing right. Mark ever got wrong that I knew or really wrong was he—he he, he used to say he married above himself. Well, she was everything he said, but so was he, and it was just <laughs> one of the great marriages that I have ever known. It was a lot. It was a service on Wednesday uh, at Busted Sacrament. It was. It, I give the church enormous credit you know as well as Ann and the family that put it together you know what it was it was a great fun celebration uh, of Mark Shield's life within a couple minutes of everyone sitting down the church was packed there was laughter and there was laughter throughout uh, most of the ceremony and that's what it should have been with Mark he had that incredible sense of humor remember someone asked him why does some why, why do some people take an instant dislike to Newt Gingrich he said "Saves some time uh, <laughs> <laughs> and he just was uh, he was the best and uh, he leaves a legacy that is just um, it's it's remarkable uh, I loved him and uh, you know you, I'll think about you, him you as, long you as, I'm
1: the, I'm as close to him as anybody but a lot of people love Mark Shields let me tell oh. you that's a, that's a big club
0: people who never met him and never knew him loved Mark Shields right. I've just been right. seeing that with notes the last day so Mark rest in peace dear friend uh, you you did a lot in life and you left us in sure a lot did. better shape So thank you very much. Sure did. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist and Raycon, in our show notes. We thank you for supporting them when you do. It helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.